First Samuel chapter six. Now I'm, I'm warmed up. I'm ready, man. If you grew up in the 90s, like I did, you would have been familiar with a popular slogan of that day called No Fear. You would find this slogan on T-shirts, on windshields. Some rednecks had it on their belt buckles. They even had tattoos people would get that said No Fear. My parents would never let me have one of them T-shirts. They never would let me have those. Uh, even Christian bookstores like Mardell's and Lifeway tried to spin it, you know, to have a Christian meaning. They still wouldn't let me have it because they said that it represented a bad attitude. And they were right. Because no fear in the 90s, that slogan was a way of saying, I don't care. I'm not afraid. I don't fear anybody. I don't fear anything. I'll, I'll, it was a very independent attitude. I'll do what I want. When I want, I don't fear the consequences and I don't care what you think because I don't fear you. Unfortunately, that same mentality still exists today, even towards God. We live in a society, don't we, that doesn't really fear God. There's little respect given to God. The attitude today is the same as it was in the 90s, but worse our society at large says, I will do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, and however I want. And I don't care what people think, or what people say, or what the consequences are. No fear. And honestly, that mentality is to be expected among those who are lost. How could we expect someone who hasn't submitted to the lordship of Christ in their life to fear the Lord and respect the holiness of the Lord? How do we expect a lost person to walk into the service tonight and to grasp the depth of a song like holy, holy, holy? It's kind of like last week's message on the Philistines. Should we really expect an enemy of God, the pagan Philistines, to respect God? Should it really shock us? That the Philistines would have wore a no fear t-shirt? No, they're lost. Lost people do what lost people do. I'm not as concerned tonight about the lost who show no fear of God in their life. I'm not as concerned about our culture at large that, that shows little to no respect for the holiness of God. Does it fire me up? Absolutely. Does it concern me? Not really. You know what concerns me? Christians who show no fear of God. Christians who name the name of Christ. Christians who claim to be saved, claim to be followers of God, yet have little to no respect for His holiness. Can I ask you tonight, how's your fear of God? Church members of Fellowship Baptist Church, how do you treat the holiness of God in your life? It's easy for us to point a finger at the lost world around us and complain about them. But I'm asking all of us to look inward tonight at ourselves. Do you really fear God? Do you reverence and respect his power and his holiness? Are you afraid of sinning against him? Does the judgment of God and the chastisement of God that he can bring on your life for living in sin, does that, does that, does that bring a, a sense of terror into your heart? Now I realize this, this is countercultural preaching tonight. 
Many modern day preachers wouldn't touch on this aspect of God because, because it makes God look like a mean God. And so they ignore this quality of God and they preach only on attributes like love and mercy and grace. And you know, preaching out of Ephesians, I'm all about those loving, merciful, gracious attributes of God. But, but in order for me to be fair and honest to scripture, I have to preach God in his full character as he reveals himself, not just being loving and gracious and merciful, but being holy and being just. And it's that attribute of God. It's his holiness that demands our fear. It's his holiness that demands our respect. It's his holiness that calls upon us to live holy lives. My concern tonight, church, my burden tonight is that many Christians are not living in the fear of this God. Instead, they are mimicking the no fear mentality of the culture around them. Such was the case with the people of God in our text. The people of Beth Shemesh. I don't know if I'll say it that way all night long because it's not a name that I talk about all the time. I might put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. But these people knew God. These were God's people. Yet in our story, they treat God's holiness no different than the pagan Philistines. The story teaches us three things about the tragedy of fearlessness. Here's the first. Fearlessness leads to sin. Let's, let's learn from the story. Verse 13. And they of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. You remember the Philistines thought, okay, we tried to take it to Gath. We tried to take it to Ekron. Now we're going to have it back for a total of seven months. Verse one of chapter six. And we got to figure out what to do. So they, they, they put those golden imrons and golden mice into the box. And they, they're taking it back to this place called Beth Shemesh. The, the citizens of this place were working in the fields, harvesting wheat. They looked up and, and they saw the ark. What, what was significant about Beth Shemesh? Well, it was a Levitical city set aside for a clan called Kohath or Kohath. This was a Levitical family that, that was charged with the responsibility of caring for the Ark of the Covenant. So number one, it makes sense why the Philistines would take it there. Number two, it makes sense why the end of verse 13 says that these people rejoiced when they saw the Ark coming their way. Because if anybody knew what the Ark represented to the people of God, it was the people of Beth Shemesh. And so in priestly fashion... Here's what they do. They prepare a great sacrifice to the Lord in the celebration of the ark's return. They, they turn the field of Joshua into a temporary worship site. They slaughter the cows that were carrying the ark and they presented those cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Look at verse 14. And the ark came into the field of Joshua, Beshemite, and stood there where there was a great stone and they, cl they claved the wood of the cart and offered the kind a burnt offering unto the Lord. Now, now at first, in just casual reading, you might, might say this is a reverent act of worship to God. But when you study how they did it, it was actually just the opposite. It was irreverent because it was disobedient. Let me explain the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, which with these people of Beth Shemesh would have been very, very familiar with, taught this. Only male animals were to be used in burnt offerings. You can study Leviticus 1 verse 3, it tells you that. But what did verse 14 say they offered? The kind, K-I-N-E, kind to the Lord. That is a female cow. This was an early indication in the narrative of their lack of fearing God. It might have been a very small detail. But no small detail is really that small to God. 
Every single jot and tittle in his word is important to him and he expects us to obey all of it. This is just the start of their disobedience though. It gets worse because after the Philistines observe the Israelite celebration, they go back to Ekron. Now at that point, follow this. The, 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 the Kohathites, whose responsibility it was to take care of the holy things of Israelite worship, such as the ark, you know what they should have done at that point? They should have hid the ark from view. I base that on Numbers chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that teaches that no Israelite outside of the priesthood of Aaron were permitted to even see the exterior of the ark, much less its interior. I mean, even the chosen clan, the Kohathites themselves, were forbidden to touch or view the inside of the ark. But because they didn't fear God as they should, they kept it out in the open. And how many know that it's the forbidden things of life that arouse our curiosity sometimes? And curiosity ended, ended up getting the best of some of the men of Beth Shemesh. They looked inside of the ark and they touched it in the process, which is another act of disregard for God's holiness, another act of disregard for God's word. And the Bible says many of them died right there on the spot. We'll talk about that in just a moment. I want to go back to the fact that they sacrificed a female cow instead of a male cow. They disregarded God's word. And then they touched the ark and they looked in the inside of the ark. They disregarded God's word again. Here's the greater point. Fearlessness always leads to sin. These Israelite men could not have claimed ignorance. They knew the word of God. They knew God's expectation upon them concerning the ark. Yet because over time they lost their fear of God, they disregarded his word and did as they pleased. Don't miss this principle. Fearing God and obeying God are two things that you cannot separate. One leads to the other. That's why Solomon paired them together in the very last book, uh, uh, very last verse of the book Ecclesiastes. Look at this verse. He says this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This sums it up. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Now, now we're into application because how, how can we know if we're lacking the fear of God in our life, I'll tell you how we can know. It'll show up in your living. You see, God has given clear boundaries in his word, clear commandments in his word. When you fear him, you live your life within those boundaries. When you don't fear him, you feel the freedom to step outside of those boundaries in little ways and in big ways. I think of our young people. I love you. I'm thankful for you. Those, those seats are being filled every Sunday morning, Sunday night. And on Wednesday night, I heard we just had a young person get saved. And on Wednesday night after Brother Tanner preached, very grateful for what God's doing in your life. But I'm burdened for you tonight, young people, because God has given you some boundary setters in your life. They're called your parents. And they're not always perfect. And they don't always set the exact right boundaries. And when you break boundaries, they don't always respond in the perfect way. So I'm not setting them up as God in your life, but they are God-given authority in your life. And they are boundary setters in your life. You want to know a chief, look at me please, a chief indicator of the fact that you are losing your respect for God and losing a reverence and a healthy fear of God's chastisement and judgment on your life. You want to know how? If you consistently struggle with the boundaries your parents set for your life. And Ephesians 6 makes it clear. It's not just staying within those boundaries. It's doing it with an honorable spirit. You obey and honor your parents. If you consistently have a bad attitude towards those boundaries, you might, you might comply. 
But if you're consistently sour about those and back talk about those and huff and puff about those and roll your eyes about, and, and all these kind of, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That is a chief indicator that the problem is not your parents. The problem is your heart towards God. He gave you your parents. You didn't choose them. God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, gave you the mom and the dad that he wanted you to have. They are boundary setters in your life and you must stay within those boundaries. You, you, I begin to think about, about things in which the world around us and God's people seem to be breaking the boundaries in because those are just indicators to me that we're not fearing God as we should. And the number one thing that came to my mind was, 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 was the sexual relationship. You see, the world broke those boundaries a long time ago. I'm talking about the boundaries that, that sex is a good thing within the boundary of marriage. The world blew that out of the box a long time ago. To be expected. What's sad is that God's people are disregarding this boundary too. I'm going to say this kindly, but it is not uncommon. It is not uncommon for us to have to deal with cohabitation in our church. That's not God's, that's not God's plan. The world says you live together to see if it will work and then you commit. God says you commit and by my grace, I'll make it work. But yet we step outside of God's boundary. We don't fear his chastisement. We don't fear his justice. We don't fear his judgment. We don't respect and reverence his word and his commandments in our life. We go about doing marriage and sex our own way. In fact, back in the 60s, they say that 450,000 people could have been found co-inhabiting at the same time. Today, over 8 million people in the United States, not in the United States, but 8 million people worldwide. I don't, oh, that's, a, that's a bad statistic. I didn't write that down right. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. I might preach this message again, so I'm taking this note to change that. That's too bad. More people today than the 60s are living together for their married. That's what I should have said. You get what I'm saying? Here's what I'm saying. The reverence for God hasn't gone up. It's gone down. And it is, it is, it is so evident by how we treat things like the sexual relationship. But fearlessness doesn't just lead to the clear breaking of God's word, just outright sin. I want you to catch this. Sometimes, sometimes it comes in the form, a little more subtle form of sin, such as a sense of mediocrity that creeps in in our approach to God. See, just like the men of, of Beth Shemesh treated the ark of God lightly by touching it. Did you know that we often, if we're not careful, approach God in worship with a sense of mediocrity that's displeasing to him? We're too casual or we're too distracted or we're too lethargic. I mean, think about this. Our worship involves several things, giving, serving, singing, praying, several other things. These things are not to be treated lightly. But to those that don't fear God, hey, it starts to show up in how they give. They start justifying in their mind, not tithing, not fulfilling their missions commitment. And so to rob God over time becomes a light thing. Like, like that's the language that, that Malachi used whenever we, we don't put God first in our fantasy, we rob him. I mean, our law enforcement, they don't treat lightly when somebody's robbed. Yet we can come and rob God and not lose any sleep at all. 
Fearlessness shows up in our service to the Lord as, as our commitment to him just slowly digresses. We don't fall out of ministry all at once. We slowly start losing our commitment. It shows up in our spirit as we lack enthusiasm and we lack willingness to help. It, it shows up when we, start, when, when we refuse to treat with excellence our service to the Lord. Rather, we treat it with mediocrity. You know, fearlessness shows up in our corporate worship. We're disengaged in singing. We're unmoved by the Spirit of God. We're distracted during the preaching. We seldom have ever fallen on our knees at an altar. We walk in and out of church unchanged and unmoved over and over and over and over. That is a result of fearlessness. Treating lightly the things that God takes seriously. Now, I don't want you to hear this point and instantly think, okay, I got to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I got to stop doing this and saying that and going there. I've got to get my act together. Listen, that would just be behavior modification. I'm looking for a heart transformation. And that's where the fear of God comes in because we sin less when we fear God more. The purity and holiness of our lives will be motivated by our inward respect for the purity and holiness of our God, not vice versa. We don't get our act together to be pleasing to God. Find favor with God. I mean, all of that's good. All of that's great. We just, what we need to do is we need to get along with God. We need to get in a place of humility before God. We need to study the attributes of God. We need to become familiar with the holiness of God, afresh and anew, to where we can respect Him. And we, we, can, we can fear Him on the inside, truly. And then naturally, as a byproduct, obedience will follow. Fearlessness leads to sin. Notice, secondly, fearlessness invites judgment. Look at verse 19. And he smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and ten men. Because of their sin, God smote 50,000 and seventy Man, that's nearly three times the size of our town. That is a huge devastation. And it teaches us a somber truth. Listen, when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. James 1.15 confirms this to be the truth, that when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth Death, when we choose to fearlessly sin over and over against God's word, listen, something will die. But you know what, what fearless Christians do? They disconnect their choices with their consequences. They don't think through the process of how their lust will grow and then it'll eventually turn into sin and their sin will reap a harvest of judgment. They don't see that far down the road. In their fearlessness, they want what they want right now. Maybe the most shocking of anything in this narrative to me is the amount of people that were killed because of their sin. 50,070 people. Why that many? Here's why. God's trying to make a statement to his people. If you remember back in chapter 4, Brother Tanner preached, the Philistines killed 30,000 Israelites. Yet in chapter 6, God in his holiness killed more than 50,000. He's trying to make a statement. He's trying to get his people to understand that his holiness is to be feared more than the military might of the Philistines. One might ask, are these stories supposed to make us afraid? And I would answer, absolutely they are. They are to spark within us a fear of sinning against a holy God. 
Don't get me wrong. You don't have to fear that he will stop loving you. You don't have to fear that he will take your salvation away from you. But these narratives should cause you to be awakened to the devastation that he can bring into your life in an effort to get your attention. But instead of stories like this causing us to fear God, we generally respond in one of two ways. Here's the first. We think we'll be the exception. We think to ourselves, well, I know so-and-so Christian who did this and nothing bad happened to them. That's just an Old Testament Bible story. And my mom did this and she's okay. My dad did this and he's okay. My big brother has gone down this path and now he came back to God and it's all good. I think I'll risk that. My question to you, if your thinking is that way, is this. Here's my question. Why in the world would you take your cues from someone who has sinned and seemingly got away with it? Why are they your example? They're the exception. I want to encourage you to take your cues from the many more who have tried to live their life fearlessly and recklessly and paid the price for it. I'm, uh, why take your cues from the very few who have been able to drink alcohol and it not ravaged their life and their relationships? Why not take your cue from the hundreds of thousands of people whose marriages are wrecked today, whose health is wrecked today because of alcohol and its abuse? Why think you'll be the exception? Don't take your cues from the few who have sowed their wild oats in the world and then came back to God seemingly unscathed. Hey, take your cues from the many who have walked away from God and have scars to prove it. Take your cues from the over 50,000 men of Beth Shemesh who died for breaking God's law. Take your cues from Jonah who, who, who had to be in the belly of a well for three days and three nights because he ran from God. Take your cue from Samson who disregarded his parents' advice and lost three wives, his eyesight, his freedom because of it. Take your cues from King David who committed adultery, lost his child, and reaped a dysfunctional home as a result. More people... More people suffer the consequences of sin than get away with their sin. Quit thinking that you'll be an exception. That's our first response. We think that we'll be an exception. Here's another common response. We just question God's love. Looking at something like that, we get defensive. And we know that it's not like we, we, we think we'll get away with it. We, we don't struggle with that. But many just get defensive and they say, how could God be like this? Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody sins. Nobody's perfect. Where's the love? Where's the forgiveness? I mean, really? He had to kill 50,000 people for making a mistake, for touching a box? Here's what you got to realize. Don't miss this. God's love is in this story. But the love is reflected in the warning. What do you mean? He loved them enough to give them clear instructions in the Torah Related to the ark that they knew very well. Multiple times he told them how to properly conduct themselves around the, the, the sacred furniture. Yet they willfully rejected his loving warning. Here's the truth. You warn people you love. Parents, you know this to be true. We love our kids. So what do we do? We teach them. We train them. We give them clear expectations. And we give them several warnings. Yet when they willfully rebel, we discipline them or we should discipline them. It would be inaccurate for our child to look at us after multiple warnings and say that we don't love them because we discipline them. 
Now we do love them. The loving was in the teaching. The loving was in the training. The loving was in the warning. And the loving is even in the discipline. Experiencing the outcome of your decisions has nothing to do with love and forgiveness. Did you hear that statement? Experiencing the outcome of your decisions has nothing to do with love and forgiveness. If you don't believe me, think about how an algebra teacher would respond. If a teacher dropped to their knees in front of the whole class at her desk and begged forgiveness after they flunked a test that they didn't study for. I mean, to break the awkward silence, she might extend her arm, help them off the ground and say, I forgive you. But that wouldn't change their grade. It might help their relationship with their teacher, but not their GPA. Listen, forgiveness and consequences are two different things. One does not override the other. So where is God's love in this narrative? It's in the warning. And the warning is clear. Fearlessness leads to sin, which then invites God's judgment into your life. If God judges you, if he chastises you because of your sin, do not raise your fist to heaven and say, God, where is your love? He has given you 66 books in the canon of scripture. This is his love letter written to mankind. That's his love. That's his love. And by the way, he only chastises those he loves. His children, I mean, those he's in a relationship with. I'm spitting all over my jacket. Now you would think that when God kills 50,000 of your own people, you'd fall on your knees in repentance. Wouldn't you think that? Would that get your attention? Would you say, okay, God, I... We acknowledge our sin for what it is. We're going to live in the fear of your holiness, but that's not what happened. Which leads to the last point. Fearlessness fails to repent. Look at the last part of verse 19. And the people lamented. That's a deep sorrow. Because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. Now, I, I sympathize with them. 50,000 of their friends just died. It's appropriate to mourn and lament and grieve and be troubled. The problem, though, is what we're going to see is that they were mourning over their consequences more than mourning over their sin. Here's how I know. Look at verse 20. The people of God ask a good question. I wish they would have stopped after the first question. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? What a great question. Man, I fear God. Man, I respect God. Man, I'm so frail. I'm such a sinner. I don't deserve to stand in his presence. Just like Isaiah felt when he saw God high and lifted up. He said, woe is me. I'm unclean. I'm undone. But it didn't stop there. They asked another question that revealed their their motive. And to whom shall he go up from us? Just like the Philistines, watch here, the Israelites wanted to get rid of God without getting right with God. They wanted to do whatever they had to do to lessen their consequences, but they didn't want to deal with their sin. And how many times have we done the same thing? About a year ago, a little over a year ago, there was a teenage boy that that came to impact. Listen closely. He came upstairs and you could just tell that his heart was soft. He had grown up kind of coming on the bus and sporadically off and on through his teenage years. But he, he'd come to find out he had gotten into some trouble and, and, and trouble with the law. Serious, serious potential of consequences that, that were uh, very, very, very serious. And, and he came to church and, 
And we thought, hey, let's, let's rally around this kid and let's invest in him. So, Brother Tanner, you, you invest in him and, and you, you invest in, in his family and you, you do what we can. And mom was coming with them and they would come to an altar and he would go up Wednesday night. He would sing and have a good countenance and a good spirit and go to the altar. Brother Tanner would meet with him. Brother Tanner even showed up at the courtroom with him one day. After walking through all of that with him, hours of investment, he gets off of the charges. Doesn't have to go to prison, doesn't have to serve any major time. Two weeks later, nowhere to be found. Nowhere. Not in impact, not in Sunday school, not in church, not even at a youth activity. You know what the problem was? He was sorry for long enough to escape his consequences. Then he's done with God. When he got rid of his consequences, he got rid of God. And you'll look later in the book of 1 Samuel and we'll discover that King Saul messed up too. God said, I want you to kill all the Amalekites. All of them, don't spare anybody. And what did King Saul do? He saved the king Agag. And he saved the best of the livestock. He was confronted by the prophet Samuel. And how did he respond? Not in the fear of God. He responded by trying to minimize it. He, he, he responded by trying to deny it. He responded by, by, by trying to rationalize it and justify it. And when Samuel saw, saw that he wasn't serious about the holiness of God and he didn't fear God and he wasn't repenting, here's what God led Samuel to tell him. You are rejected as king. Your rebellion is a sin, is witchcraft. You are no longer going to be God's king for God's people. And at that moment, you know what happened? King Saul fell on the floor. The Bible says that he grabbed the robe of Samuel, wouldn't even let him walk away, and started begging him to get his kingdom back. Here's the problem with that. He wasn't sorry until he lost his kingdom. Which reveals his heart. He was more sorry about losing his kingdom than he was sinning against his king. How do you know if you've been truly brought to a place of fearing God? Listen to me. When you are more sorry about how your sin has fractured your fellowship with God than you are about how the consequences of sin has affected your life. When you're more concerned about getting right with God than you are about getting rid of the consequences or hiding the consequences or escaping the consequences or excusing away the consequences or denying the consequences, that's when you are beginning to live in the fear of God because that is the beginning of repentance. The tragedy of fearlessness is that it leads us in, it invites judgment, and it fails to repent. What a serious passage of Scripture. That's why I appreciate the seriousness of the music tonight. Because we serve a seriously holy God. You know what I've learned, though? I'm done. I've learned that if we're not careful, we don't have to go off the deep end into sin to, to be fearless or qualify as fearless. You know, you know what we do so often? I'm talking to the Sunday night crowd, the cream of the crop. I'm preaching to the choir tonight. You know what we do? We just get too casual with God. We get too lax with God. We get a little too laid back with a holy God. And so I began to think, okay, Tyler, if you're going to 
convince them that they need to live in the fear of God, then, then the natural question pragmatically would be, what do I have to do to foster more of a healthy fear of God in my heart? What do I have to do to maintain that? I want to develop that. I want to maintain it. I want to live with that. What do I need to do daily? I'll give you, I'll give you three things that you can start doing tomorrow. You ready? Number one, study God's attributes. That is an amazing Bible study. Arthur Pink writes a book called The Attributes of God. Arthur Pink. He's an old school writer. An amazing book I read in college. The Attributes of God. I, you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about God's omniscience. I'm talking about God's omnipresence. I'm talking about God's self-sufficiency. His sovereignty. His immutability. That's his... his he, he, he doesn't change his eternality. Can mention a lot of other ones. When you really study the attributes of God, boy, it leads to a holy respect. It's hard to get casual with God when you understand who he is. Number two, cultivate an awareness of God's presence. No, see, here's what we do. Listen, we compartmentalize God. We've got... We've got our God moments at church. And we've got our God moments one, one, one hour of the day or 15 minutes a day or whatever in our quiet time with God. And when we check off that box, we step outside of it and we go to work. And, and, and we are no longer aware that God is in us and God is with us. And he's affected by our daily sin. And that's what I want you to realize, that, that, that you need to cultivate a daily awareness, a step-by-step -step awareness of God. You need to truly learn how to pray without ceasing. You need to have such a relationship with God that you can talk to him as you drive. You can talk to him as you write. You can talk to him as you text. You consult with him and inquire of him before every decision that you make. You're constantly, you're constantly communing with God. Here's the third thing. Associate closely with those who walk in the fear of God. Did you hear me? Associate closely with those who walk in the fear of God. You are a product of your five closest associations. I don't care how old you are. You are the product of your five closest associations. So you better be careful who your five are. You need to live life with those who live in the fear of God. And adults, that goes for us as much as it goes for these teenagers. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And there's no age, there's no age on that verse. I'm telling you, we get around the wrong people, the wrong voices will lead to the wrong choices in our life too. You do those three things starting Monday and you will cultivate a healthy fear of God. I wonder, I wonder. And you've done well. You, you've had to listen hard, work hard at listening. I appreciate it. But I wonder who's in here. And when you really looked inward tonight, you aren't living in the fear of God. You can sin and it'll be days before you feel conviction to confess that sin. You're lax and casual when you come into church. You don't even realize that, that this is a sacred place as we corporately worship God. I'm not saying we gotta be stuffy and we gotta be overly formal and ritualistic. That's not where I want to go in our, in our services. That's not what I mean. But at the same time, this isn't just coming to a coffee shop. Boy, this is the house of God. 
And when we sing a song called Holy, 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 quite frankly, it shouldn't take a song, a song leader giving us four or five paragraphs worth of prep, preparation in order for us to think about the depth of that song. When we sing crown him with many, with many crowns, we shouldn't be thinking our song, why are we singing this? Thinking our head, why are we singing this? What is this? It's an amazing song. Amazing song. Just because you don't get a clap doesn't mean that it's not a good song. Sometimes it's good for us to sit still for a second. To react in just absolute awe of God. Have you lost that? I'm asking you a question. Have you lost that? When you open up the book, have you lost a sense of reverence for this thing? We serve a holy God. And boy, we ought to be in fear of that. Healthy fear. Every single day. These altars are going to be open tonight. Let's use them. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, I